Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started, as always, a few notes. Hope you guys are enjoying the new website and the new logo. Actually, been getting some good feedback from people on the website and the logo, so we hope that you guys are truly enjoying the new look and the new layout of HazardGround.com. One of the most important things about HazardGround.com is that partnership with Amazon. Right there on the main homepage, scroll down to the bottom, there's that Amazon banner. You can click on that button right there. Take your rate to the Amazon website. Do all your shopping. We'll get a percentage of whatever you spend. And of course, we donate it back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast as well. You can find that on the sponsors page on HazardGround.com. The tab is at the top, so just look for it there, and you can click on Amazon that way. Also, our reading list is up. What I love about the website is just so much more user-friendly. Um, you can get to all of our previous episodes on the website. Uh, you know, Again, the book list is there. So again, continue to use HazardGround.com for everything about this podcast and keep it up with what we have going on in the show. Leave us a rating and a review uh, as well. There is a contact us page. Uh, let us know what you think. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, and... Continue to provide us with guest suggestions. If you remember our guest last week, Brian Wood, MC, the British soldier, that was a guest suggestion. Um, we got a lot of great feedback on his story. So continue to reach out to us and let us know what you like and what you don't like. Lastly, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Really like to up our Twitter followership as well as Instagram. Um, we have a good following on Facebook, but Continue to follow us on those sites if you're not doing so already. We just put out a lot of information each week about each guest and what we have coming up, as well as some previous episodes that people really like that you may not have heard or may have missed over. So follow us on social media on all the major sites, and we'll certainly uh, make sure that we get back to you if you guys ever reach out to us that way. Now that all that's out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a guest from a story we've told several times before. That is the story of Black Hawk Down. We'll get to that in just a moment, but he has over 22 years of service in the United States Army, where he was a ranger in the 75th Ranger Regiment. He has deployed to Panama, to Desert Storm, as I mentioned, Somalia. He's also gone to Iraq and Afghanistan. He ended up being commissioned as an officer, went on to be a chaplain, is a retired Army major, and in 2017, he was inducted into the U.S. Army Ranger Hall of Fame. He is Jeff Struker joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jeff, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, man, it's great to be with you. Okay, so before we get to Black Hawk Down, and again, it's a story that our audience seems to love and is gra- and gravitates towards, because, I mean, look, there's so many reasons to gravitate towards it, but that said, you've had a long career, over 22 years of active federal service. Uh, start back at the beginning for me. Why did you join? Because at that point in time, there wasn't a war going on. It was pretty peacetime, and you know, just the world was a different place back then. Yeah, well, thanks for pointing that out. Um, I like for your listeners who don't understand what the army was, well, what the nation was going through in the mid '80s, um, early '90s. You had this period of unprecedented prosperity and peace. And when I joined the army, people used to say, "If you ever go to combat, meaning you could spend twenty-five or thirty years in the army and never go to combat." Today, people say when you go to combat, which means it's a given. If you're in the army or in the military long enough, you will eventually go to war. And you just described it pretty well for your listeners, man. There's two different uh, generations, very different generations in the army today versus the late 80s when I joined up. No, and it's true. I I tell the story all the time that I I was a senior in college in ROTC, and I remember the job fairs that were going on, and my friends and classmates would ask me, you going to the job fair? And I would say, no. And they would say, why? I said, well, I have to go into the Army. And they looked at me dead face and said, well, why don't you get a real job? And this was prior to 9-11, of course. Little yeah. did we know that two years later, you know, my, my job became very real. But that said, I mean, it was just it was a different mentality back then. So what drew you to sign up, though? Well, I was still in high school. Um, my hometown is a small town in the Midwest, and there's not a lot of job uh, advancement, not a lot of job opportunities. That was part of it. Um, 
frankly, I wanted to get out of town and the army offered me a chance to get out of town, but I was looking for a challenge. And um, I've had a chance to tell audiences from time to time, literally the day that I walked into a recruiter's office, I didn't know the first thing about the military. Nobody was really giving me any advice. (laughs) But my first question out of my mouth was, what's the toughest job in the army? If whatever that is, I want that job, sign me up for it, just because I wanted to challenge myself. Impressive. So when you signed up, did you know you were going to be a ranger? Did you get a ranger contract back then? I tried to, while I was still in the recruiter's office, tried to get a ranger contract. There were no contracts for infantrymen. I could get a contract to go be like a ranger cook or a ranger supply guy. I wasn't interested in that. So my recruiter, who was really honest with me, he was like, Jeff, here's the deal. Let us sign you up for infantry and airborne school. And when you're in airborne school, they're going to give basically anybody who wants to a chance to try out for the Ranger Regiment. And he was, man, he he spelled the whole thing out for me and he was absolutely right. So yeah, I went in with the deliberate intention of trying to be infantry in the Ranger Regiment. You may be the first person on the Hazard Ground podcast to actually have a recruiter tell them something that actually happened. So <laughs> Yeah, my recruiter was really straight up with me. I, I, I really appreciate the guy. All right, so uh, you go to basic training. You had no idea what the Army was about. Anything shock you there? Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I think my recruiter tried to prepare me well, so I had a little bit of idea of what I was getting into. Um, I didn't realize how um, global the army was, like how it it represented not just all of America, but there were guys from all over the world that were showing up in the U.S. Army back in the day. Um, and I, I'm, man, I have to hesitate to even say this. I expected basic training to be a lot harder than it was. <laughs> um, I expected airborne school to be a lot harder than it was. When I got to the Ranger indoctrination program, that's when I really got challenged and the challenge that I was looking for. Um, So I I guess I was a little bit disappointed by basic training and even a little bit disappointed by airborne school. I mean, did all of this seem at the time like, you know, uh, that you felt all along you had made the right decision or wasn't it wasn't until you got to Ranger indoctrination program, RIP, as it's commonly known, when you got there and you realized, okay, this is what I really wanted. Yeah, it was definitely when I got there uh, to the Ranger indoctrination program that I realized this is what I was looking for. I mean, when I was in basic training, I once made the mistake of letting a drill sergeant know. He asked me, what is your plans after you leave basic Strucker? And I said, well, I really want to go to the Ranger Regiment. And they all started laughing at me and mocking me like, yeah, you're never going to make it. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough. And that was kind of sitting in the back of my mind that I may not be successful in the Ranger Regiment, but I I thought to myself, I'm at least going to give it a shot. I'll give it everything that I got. And if I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. Um, But I really didn't get that um, somebody pushing me to to the limits until I showed up to RIP, as it's referred to the Ranger Indoctrination Program. It was there that I really got challenged, the challenge that I was looking for. So how quickly do you actually get to Ranger School and then to the Regiment? I showed up to uh, the Ranger Regiment right out of airborne school. So I'd been in the Army for less than four or five months, Um, was in the Ranger Regiment for about six months when they sent me to uh, Ranger school Um, and then became uh, once you once you completed the Ranger course. Now you have the ability to be a leader in the Ranger Regiment and it all took off from there. First time going to ranger school, ever get uh, recycled? Yeah. <laughs> yes, but that had nothing to do with me. I think I just ended up in the right patrols at the right time and didn't get didn't get uh, busted up in ranger school. But, yeah, I went straight through in uh, October through December of 88. All right. So you had mentioned that RIP was where you kind of said, okay, this is what I was looking for. Were you actually going through the nine weeks of ranger school? Are you saying this is what I was looking for? Or, Boy, this was a bad decision. Oh, man, Ranger School was everything that I thought it would be and then some. Um, and I I think to this day, it, it's been more than 30 years since I've been out of Ranger School, but I think I'm still influenced by Ranger School today as a man and as a leader. Why? And I want to tell your listeners, hey, if you get a shot at the U.S. military, doesn't matter what branch of service, and they allow you to go to Ranger School, go. Because Ranger School taught me about me. It didn't just teach me how to lead. It didn't just teach me how to deal with difficult circumstances like lack of food or lack of sleep. Ranger school taught me about my limits and how to face my limits and keep going. And uh, 
I still look outside in the cold rain, um, you know, in the fall around here and say, thank God I'm not in ranger school right now. <laughs> so um, after you finally get that tab and you're back at your unit, um, is life different for you? Do you feel different or is it just now kind of because, again, there's not a war going on. Nothing's happening. So yeah. what's kind of day to day life like as a ranger that you finally got to where you wanted to go? Well, ultimately, life is different. At, with a ranger tab in the ranger regiment than without you i hope your listeners understand you don't sure. have to have a ranger tab in the ranger regiment but basically your career is not going anywhere and you're not going to be there for very long without one with a ranger tab doors start to open up even in the ranger regiment um but this is late 80s and the only guys in the ranger regiment there's only a handful maybe 15, 20 guys left with any combat experience. There's one or two really senior guys that have been to Vietnam. And then there's a maybe a dozen guys in the Ranger Regiment that took part in the invasion of Grenada, Operation Urgent Fury in 1983, that are still around. So all of the rest of us, even guys that have been around the Ranger Regiment for many years, are all planning for, training for, and quite frankly, looking for the opportunity to go to war. And for most of us, we thought probably not going to happen in our lifetime. Well, lo and behold, uh, little skirmishes seem to break up or rise up around the world. And one of them is in Panama after they go after Manuel Noriega. You were part of that Operation Just Cause back then. We've told that story as well here on the podcast. Can you talk about kind of the train up to that and where you were going sure. and what you had heard? And then finally we'll get into yeah. you know what happened when you got on ground, but you know, how did that all come about for you? I'll give you the short version of Panama. So this is my first combat experience. Um, my platoon sergeant is a ranger from Vietnam. Um, so he's got some combat experience, obviously, and uh, the rest of us, none of us have any combat experience whatsoever. I'm in the Ranger Regiment's Reconnaissance Detachment in 1989, and we had planned for – the Ranger Regiment had planned for an invasion. It had, The plans had been on the books. We had kind of dusted those plans off and changed them several times for months um, before December rolled around. And the Ranger Regiment's Reconnaissance Detachment was one of those units that was going to take the lead and kind of get in there early. So I got notified probably four or five times. This is back in the day of the pager. You guys will remember that thing from a long time ago, right? Yeah, so, your beeper. Yeah, the Ranger Regiment, the guys that were on short recall were rocking the beeper. And uh, more than once in the fall of 89, my beeper went off. It was drop what you're doing, get to work, grab your stuff. And then when I got into the office, they said, we're going to Panama. And less than 10, 12 hours later, it was, hey, take your weapons back to the arms room. We're not going. War's, over. War's turned off. So this happened several times to me while I was in the reconnaissance detachment. And I started to get a little bit jaded. Like, I don't know who's pulling strings here or what the game is, but I'm not sure we're ever going to go to Panama. And then late December, I remember this pretty vividly because I'm on staff duty, which means I'm the guy sitting at the desk making sure that the building doesn't burn down and answering the phones at two o'clock in the morning. And the next morning, we're supposed to go on Christmas break. And I'm looking through paperwork, trying to make sure that my Christmas break, uh, you know, leave form is ready to go. It's signed and I can sign out the next morning. And I'm noticing all of the big wigs, their leave forms are signed. Everybody's taken off units shutting down. Everybody's going home for vacation the next morning. And um, I'm supposed to get off work at like nine in the morning and about four o'clock in the morning while I'm on staff duty, my pager goes off. And of course, I'm already at the desk and I already noticed that there's a lot of scurrying around in the basement below me where the Intel guys hung out. And when the pager went off, it said, uh, drop your stuff, get into the work, which is very unlikely. Um, so I, you know, made sure that somebody was man in the desk, went into the office. And when I went into the office, they said, hey, everybody was grumpy. They thought we were, somebody's playing games with them. They were saying uh, it's Panama, but this is just another, you know, um, another thing that just going to get, uh, you know, we'll get all spun up and then we'll get sent down again. And I said, no, guys, yesterday or last night I was looking in the in the lead forms and this is 
this is everybody, even the big wigs leave that is getting canceled right now. Like nobody's playing games anymore. This one's for real. And sure enough, 48 hours later, I'm on a C-141 flying down to Panama 24 hours before the invasion began. As you as this operation kicks off, uh, what do you know about what your job is? And, you know, have you heard the name Manuel Noriega to this point? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, like I said, I've spent four or five months planning to go down there and to capture Noriega and to bring him back. And we had changed the plan, tweaked the plan. We'd been working this plan for quite some time before we went down there. The original plan was called Operation Blue Spoon. And then when it became the invasion of Panama, it changed into Operation Just Cause. But Blue Spoon had been changed a number of times before we actually got on the ground in 89. Being that this is your first combat experience, did you have a lot of faith in the plan because it had been changed so much? Did you have any fears, reservations going in? Well, my I, I everything was completely unknown to me. And I... I really didn't know what to expect. Like I'm, I'm a sergeant by this point, been in the army for about two years, got a tab, you know, got some responsibility, but I still never been to combat. Don't know what to expect. Like 99.5% of the guys that were with me. And, um, all of us went down there wide eyed and bushy tailed, but my boss, the guy who had some combat experience pulled about uh, several of us off to the side. And he said, Hey, let me tell you what to expect when you get down there. And man, I'll tell you what, that little 15 minute conversation that he had with us made all of the difference because he basically said, I've been to combat. Here's what it's like. This is what you guys can expect. You just need to know that when the bullets start flying, everything that you plan for, it all it all goes to pot and you just start improvising after that. But this is what it's like to get shot at. I needed to hear that. And in fact, the first time that I got shot at, he was right next to me, um, you know, laying on the ground in a little fighting position, telling me exactly how to handle myself. And man, I needed that. Care to share some of the details of what he told you? Yeah, he basically said, hey, you're going to have these moments of boredom, minutes or hours or days of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. When the bullets start flying, they're coming in from multiple directions. And his one piece of advice that I remember distinctly is, you've been trained well, follow my leadership and do what you've been trained to do and you'll be okay. I tell you that, man, because um, I've taken a number of guys to combat for the first time. And I've had that exact same conversation with everybody who's been to combat with me for the first time, because I feel like they needed somebody to do for them what a guy did for me. Yeah, I wish I had had that conversation. I really do. Like, I mean, prior to my first deployment to Iraq, you get briefed on a hundred different things, right? Uh, You know, the rules of war, rules of engagement, you know, uh, all this silly stuff, you know, Arabic culture, this, that, and the other. No one ever sits you down and says, here's what it's like when a bullet whizzes by your head. Yeah. Like that, that, that's probably the first class you should get. Only a guy, that's right, and only a guy who's been there knows, and a guy who's been there, I think, owes it to the guys and gals that haven't been there to say, this is what it's like. This is what you can expect. Um, so uh, I, I arrived in Panama 24 hours before the invasion began because I'm in the Ranger Regiment's reconnaissance detachment. The invasion's going down on the 20th of December. We needed a search and rescue force down there, so... The original plan was for the recon detachment to free fall in and to secure the airfields that the Ranger Regiment would land on. That plan got changed at the last second. So we flew down there and did search and rescue for the night of the uh, invasion. And then after that, Ranger Regiment's reconnaissance detachment just went to key locations and tried to prepare for the larger Ranger force to show up and to first defeat the Panamanian Defense Forces. That was number one objective. But the ultimate mission was get Noriega, put him on a C-130 and get him back to the States. Now, ultimately, that happens. And and it, if I recall correctly, it tends to happen with very or much less expected gunfire than what was planned for. Right. I mean, it was it was kind of uncelebratory, if you will. I, I was man, I hate to say this, but it was pretty it was pretty awesome. My first gunfight or two. But after that, the whole invasion kind of let me down. I was like, <laughs> I, I expected these guys to fight better. Like on one occasion, a Panamanian um, 
Panamanian Defense Force guy locked himself in his own handcuffs and handed his weapon in to me saying, hey, I surrender and don't shoot me or any of my buddies. And I was like, where's the will to fight? I'm here to, you know, to, to kill bad guys. And you guys are surrendering before I even get a chance to do that. Yeah, so anticlimactic to say the least. Yeah. But you get your first taste of combat. Let me ask you, do you feel, I don't know how to phrase it, are you more of a ranger, more of a soldier now after Panama? Do you feel that way at least? Well, you know, every guy in the ranger regiment wants what's called a scroll sandwich. Sure. Uh, ranger scroll on one shoulder means uh, assigned to the ranger regiment. A uh, ranger scroll on the other soldier means went to combat with the ranger regiment. And I think more than anything else, the guy and gal who's serving in the Ranger Regiment right now wants the scroll on the shoulder that says, I've been to combat with this unit um, because it was so hard to get and so looked up to. So did I feel different? No. But was I treated different after coming back from the Ranger or coming back from the invasion of Panama with the Ranger scroll? Yeah. Like everywhere I went, people talked to me, treated me, acted different around me. There was kind of a hush around me because you remember it was a small force that went to the invasion of Panama to begin with. And there was kind of a hush around me when I walked into the room among guys that didn't have any combat experience whatsoever when they saw the Ranger scroll on the shoulder that said I went to combat with them. So yeah, it was different. That was late 89, about 12, 13 months later, of course, you know, the desert storm uh, is brewing. So Uh, Take me up to kind of, you know, the events for you for that as you guys get ready for, you know, the Middle East. Yeah. So this will give your listeners a little bit of background on how prepared I was for Somalia by the time I got there. I'm still in the Ranger Regiment in the Reconnaissance Detachment in 91. The Ranger Regiment had been back and forth with going to start the the, uh, ground war in Iraq during Desert Storm. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll go um, as a whole. Maybe we'll not go at all. Maybe a select unit of the Ranger Regiment will go. And I don't want to get into with your listeners all of the politics at the higher levels about how that thing went down. But but because I'm in the reconnaissance detachment and a very small um, elite part of the Ranger Regiment that is usually forward for the the larger Ranger Regimental units, I'm getting all of that information, all of that intelligence as it's unfolding. And it got really political and frankly – very confusing all along the way. Well, Jeff, let, let's pause there for a moment. I, I'm just curious as to why you don't want to mention it. The only reason I, I bring it up is because, as we've talked about with Somalia, politics played a big part in several different ways uh, on both the front end and the back end of everything that went on in Somalia. I mean, it, it just from a is it because the political conversation gets too in-depth? Well, by politics, I don't mean the civilian leadership of the military because no, I no, think no, most not at all. You guys do whatever you want to do. We're behind you 100 percent. I'm talking about senior level leaders in the Department of Defense, senior uh, g- general officers in the Department of Defense and a little bit of jockeying back and forth about this. Yeah. And and we discussed that a lot uh, on the podcast. I mean, look, it's well noted that, uh, you know, politics, if it, it could have gotten Osama bin Laden probably 10 years earlier oh, than yeah. when he was actually captured, yeah. had they provided more ground forces that were requested from commanders on the ground in Afghanistan. Yeah. And I mean, that's 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 fact. I mean, that, that, I'm not speculating any of that. That is what ground force commanders have said. And in retrospect, after, you know, doing. Uh, you know, the right analysis, we've learned that we we, we could have gotten them in December yeah. 2001. As it was, yeah. it was 10 more years before they actually got a hold of them. So there is a political... Look, war is nothing but the physical extension of politics. That's all it is. According to Clausewitz, anyway. Right. Yeah. So, and from that standpoint... You know, everything we do has a political end. Uh, we don't fight wars without a political end. So the, while the political nature of it doesn't matter when we're on the ground and bolts are flying, uh, because none of that matters to, at all, it's never going to save your life. But in the grand scheme of things, why and how we get to combat, I think the politics serves, or sure. at least the discussion serves a purpose. Yeah. So I'll give you the short version of this. There's two Parallel discussions that are going on during Desert Shield, the air campaign in Iraq about use of the Ranger Regiment. One of them is let's throw those guys in early. Let's hit lots of targets with those guys. But frankly, they're a very uh, elite and very light, meaning they can't sustain themselves for very long in the desert. Right. They're a very light, very elite force. So let's use them, use them fast and hard and then get them out of there. 
And I think there was a lot of push for that. The planners were, there was another vein in the planning that said, why would we put this very light, very lethal force in a majority tank war? Like what's their real war? What's their real role there? And there was a little bit of that going on, but there was also the animosity between conventional forces and special operations. Yeah. Like, hey, we've been conventional our whole lives. You special operators have been flying around the world, getting in firefights, flying back 12 hours later and acting like you guys are the heroes while we've been sitting back and, and sucking down dust in, you know, and tank exhaust. So there was some of that. It's time for us conventional guys to be in the limelight. And I think they should have been in the limelight because this is a tank war and Rangers are not really good at fighting a tank war. They can, but that's just not their forte. Well, and, so and, and to that point, th- those two arguments going on at the same time. I, I wonder when you hear that, you know, from your position, are you somebody who says at least thinks, you know, doctrinally, they're going to put us in a situation that we're not supposed to be used and they're going to set us up for failure? Or is this one of the things where you say, I don't care, you know, you put us on the ground, we're going to go win this thing no matter what? Yeah, I have both attitudes going on at the same time. Like, come on, y'all. I thought we're playing on the same team. Give me whatever mission you want to give me. I'll do it to the best of my ability. And frankly, the guys that I work with, it really doesn't matter what mission you give us, we will win. But secondly... Don't send me out there, you know, with my little M16, uh, AR-15 to go fight against the tank because we kind of know how that thing is going to turn out, too. So I hope the big bosses are at least standing their ground and making sure that the kind of mission that we get, the, the special operations community gets, really fits our capabilities. And I think ultimately that's how this thing played out when the Ranger Regiment sent a handful of us over to Kuwait. All right, so streamline it for me. The the Desert Storm experience was what? <laughs> I spent six days in Kuwait late in December 91. This was a show of force mission on the border of Iraq to tell Saddam Hussein – um, we will we will roll back across the border and we will ball your whole country up this time, which includes Baghdad and the rest of the country if you don't back down. Um, but in the process, my reconnaissance team was doing a reconnaissance for the first Ranger Battalion that was doing this show of force mission called Operation Iris Gold. And during this reconnaissance mission, my little reconnaissance team came under fire from across the border. And now we've got somewhat of an international incident going on. Like, okay, are you guys really serious about rolling back across the border? Cause we're getting shot at from across the border and we're, we're, we're requesting permission to return fire. And that request I, I can hear cause I'm operating the SATCOM radio is going all the way up to the highest level saying, uh Oh, we didn't really think this thing was going to cause us to roll back across the border. And it looks like we might end up going across the border again. <laughs> we never actually anticipated they would fire at us. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, it's a great poker game that, that, go- that government likes to play sometimes. Well, that, that was my second firefight in my second different combat engagement. And this one was different because now the rules of engagement are a little bit more constrained And I'm literally, um, I describe this in my book, calling back to the East Coast of the U.S. and routing calls all the way through the National Command Authority saying, do we have the permission to go across the border? Because we're getting we're getting engaged from across the border. And people are like, "Uh, hold on. Let me ask my boss. Uh, Hold on. Let me ask the next boss up the chain. Yeah, you could have just went straight to the president and asked that person. It probably would have been quicker at that point. Right. Okay, so it was uh, rather, again, unceremonious for you uh, in in Desert Storm. Um, but that said, you've had your second taste of combat now in less than 24 months. And lo and behold, uh, that was the beginning of 91. So now let's fast forward about 30 months as uh, we move towards Somalia. And obviously, what was uh, one of the both pinnacles and, and toughest yeah. times throughout your career. So uh, the train up for Somalia is well documented. We had new the U.N. peacekeepers were there for a while as Muhammad Faradid was was creating havoc and starving his own people and this, that and the other. Um, Did you guys know when you were starting to train up what exactly you were going for? Yes and no. The Ranger Regiment stays prepared for everything. Sure. 
And then as it starts to look like, okay, this is about to become a reality, then they get really focused on a specific spot or a specific target. So we were a little bit prepared for Somalia, a whole lot prepared for things are heating up now in Kosovo. Stuff is starting to get hot over in a couple of other parts of the world. We may end up down in Venezuela. Who knows? We're ready for whatever. And then as IDEED really starts to target U.S. supply convoy starts to hit United Nations forces, then it becomes pretty clear like, okay, this looks like where we may end up next. When do you actually land in Somalia? Yeah, I don't know if Matt Eversman told you guys on the podcast a long time ago how this comedy of errors went down. but um, He did, but he was our first ever episode, so we're in the hundreds now. We, re- re- tell it for us. We are training as a unit, all of the joint uh, task force, which means uh, the special operators from across the military are doing this joint, this huge joint training exercise in Fort Bliss, Texas. Um, and our unit flies from Georgia. We're out in Fort Bliss, Texas for what's supposed to be about 30 days. And during that 30 day period, my company, very small part of the battalion, gets notified, hey, we're going to pull you guys out of Texas, send you up to North Carolina to go do a thing, which is extremely unusual. And all of us are like, yeah, okay, what's up? Not only that, but hey, you guys are under strength and you're under equipped. So we want the rest of the companies in the battalion to give you their equipment and a few of their people on loan before you guys get up to North Carolina, which caused guys like me with the combat experience in the unit to say, okay, I know what's going on now. The question is where? Because I really want your readers to, or your listeners to hear Now I'm 24 years old. I've got two different combat tours under my belt. And right now, still the average guy in the Army has been in the Army for 15 or 20 years with no combat. So I'm considered kind of an old man with a lot of combat experience at 24. Um, We fly up to North Carolina. As soon as we get up there, people start saying, "Okay, it's ID'd. It's Somalia. Here's the package that we're going to send. And we took another platoon from one of our sister companies up there with us and my entire company. We get up there. We start doing a little bit of training, but it's supposed to be we're getting on aircraft. We're flying to Africa in a couple of days. And then at the last second, we get the and I've been through this drill with Panama. We get the notice like, hey, it's off. War's over with. Get back on airplanes. Fly back to Texas. Pick up where you guys left off training with the rest of the force. And we literally get on airplanes, fly back to Texas, get on the ground for not even 10 hours and get the call. Hey, get back on airplanes. Fly back to North Carolina. It's going down for real this time. Which caused everybody like – I what the heck is going on? But this time, the the sister platoon that you were training with, they can't go. We're going to have to retailer the package. We're going to have to move some people around. And um, it became pretty clear to me after getting, as soon as I got to Somalia, what was happening at the geopolitical level. Basically, the commander of the um, Special Operations Command for the entire military went to the president and the secretary of defense and said, I will not send my people over to Somalia under these incredibly restrictive rules of engagement that the United Nations has. If you guys aren't willing to change those rules of engagement for us, then we're not going. And um, I got to tell you, I love that. Jenny Downing, who having a conversation with Bill Clinton and Les Aspen. I, I love that. I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, but that's what leaders are supposed to do. I mean, that's exactly right. look, and it goes back to the basic premise. And I would tell my guys this. And I, you know, when I deployed to Iraq the first time, we'd talk about, oh, warning shot, this one. I said, guys, a weapon has one role to put a round on a target. If it's not good enough to put a round on a target, then there's no reason to fire a warning shot. If there's right. a target there, engage it. This isn't that difficult. And it's the same thing with, with the idea of your entire force. You're the very tip of the spear. If you're not going to use the tip of the spear effectively, then don't even take the spear out at all because you, right. it doesn't serve its purpose. You just hit the nail on the head. That's how all of us felt. And thank God there was a four-star general like Wayne A. Downing who was willing to look the president of the United States in the eyes and say those very things to him. I don't know how many guys and gals are at the senior level today that would say that. Uh, But I got the greatest respect for that man as a leader for standing up for us like that. No, I 100% agree. Okay, so, uh, so I mean, obviously you end up going there. So the rules of engagement were changed? Yeah, they were. So they had to basically do 
phase two of United Nations operations in Somalia called UNISOM. UNISOM phase one is the rest of the U.S. military conventional forces, the rest of the United Nations. Phase two is Task Force Ranger. And Task Force Ranger is going over there not to hand out food, not to secure supply routes. We're going over there to kill or to capture Idid and the high-ranking guys in his clan. And yes, the rules of engagement got changed, but they were very malleable. In fact, the most difficult meeting I've ever been through in my military career was a six-hour rules of engagement brief before we actually get on the ground in Somalia saying, you can do this in this circumstance, but you can't do that. And by the way, there's no naval gunfire. There's no close air support. There's no attack aircraft. There's no collateral damaging munitions. Can't bring howitzers. Can't have tanks. And I was like, good gracious, man, what the heck are we fighting with? Just me and my my rifle? So that was how this thing eventually got negotiated. And it was painful. Well, and that's why I brought up the political stuff before, because, again, even for those civilians who are listening to this, who don't under, kind of understand, you know, that political nature of combat, it's, it's a big part of it. And unfortunately, people who wear suits and ties in Washington decide for us a lot of things that are well beyond our control and put us at yeah. a not only a strategic disadvantage, but a tactical disadvantage many times in combat. Yeah, I have the. William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, Colin Powell uh, philosophy of war. If you're going to send them, send everything you got and make it as brutal and as bloody and as quick and as violent as you can so that everybody says, yeah, we don't want anything to do with that. If that's the way the U.S. goes to war, then we don't want to mess with them. And the, the middle road, in my opinion, is just politically insane. Plus, it's just wrong to do that to warriors. It's dangerous, if, yes. If you want them to go over there and fight, then give them every tool in the tool bag to win. And that was not the conditions under Somalia. The reason why the body count was what it was is because of those really constrained rules of engagement. And our rules of engagement were much better than the rest of the conventional forces over there. All right. Again, this is a conversation that probably could last for an hour in and of itself. But uh, in the interest of, of telling the story, let's keep going forward. So you get there um, to Somalia. What time frame? Because, you know, obviously it's October 3rd when everything kicks off. But how many months are you actually in Somalia before that? We show up in August. We leave there in basically end of October. The U.S. The, the Special Operations Command is out of there by early November and the U.S. military gets pulled out by March of the next year. Um, Task Force Ranger does seven missions. You probably, your listeners have heard this from Mike Duran or from Lee Van Arsdale or from um, Matt Eversman, but each mission is starting to get a little bit more challenging. Um, they all are kind of tailored for the, the target and also to uh, accomplish what we're trying to do, which is take out ID and not take him out necessarily, but capture the guy. We want him to to go back to the United Nations and stand trial if possible. Um, but we thought, and I don't think this is arrogance. It was just our planners doing the best to crunch the numbers. We really thought this was going to be about a six-week thing. We're three months into it, and we haven't got ID'd. We haven't taken down a couple of more big fish in, in the pond. And right now, we're getting a ton of pressure from the Clinton administration to get out because people in the news are starting to compare Somalia to Vietnam, and it's hurting his public opinion rating. <laughs> three months. Little did they know. Oh, my God. Three months. Yeah. yeah. We're 18 years later, we're still uh, fighting two wars. Right. So um, I got the greatest credit, and I hope your listeners have heard this from others, for the commander of Task Force Ranger, a guy by the name of Major General William Garrison. I would, to this day, follow that man anywhere on the planet he asks me to go. And I'd probably do it unarmed if he asked me to do it, though I wouldn't really want to, because that guy, he gave everything that he had to try to make this task force successful, given the circumstances. and. I think it's hard for people who aren't really familiar with the military to grasp how challenging, how restrained we were while we were over there. So the the final mission, obviously, is the one um, that becomes Black Hawk Down, if you will. Uh -huh. um, that said, tell me about, given your first two previous combat experiences, what's different about Somalia than Desert Storm in Panama? Yeah. Um, 
before we get on the ground in Somalia, I had the exact same conversation with my men. None of them had been to combat at this point that my boss had with me before going to Panama, which is, guys, here's what it's going to be like. You've been well trained. You know how to fight. Follow me. Follow your team leaders. Everything is going to be okay. Unfortunately, I had to also add the little warning. And by the way, do what you've been trained to do and don't worry about the rules of engagement. If anybody is going to stand for a court martial for what you do over there, it will be me. So just do your job and don't think about rules of engagement. I said that before we even left Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Um, We get over there and the night that we arrived, we came under mortar attack. And it was pretty much a regular occurrence. Every night, you could almost set your clock to it. We're going to get mortared or we're going to get rocketed. You almost know exactly when it's going to happen. You know exactly how long it's going to last. And it was pretty accurate mortar fire. So I climb up on a wall. I haven't even been in the country for eight hours by this point. Start to try to engage the guys that are shooting mortars at us. And the rest of my men, I'm on a ladder uh, looking over a wall. And the rest of my men are down below me. And I lean down and I, I remember this very vividly. I lean down to my men and I said, finally, America has found an enemy that's willing to fight back. Like in Somalia, I mean, in Panama, they're locking themselves in their own handcuffs. In Desert Storm, they're surrendering. Entire units are surrendering at a a shot. In Somalia, it was different. And these folks were ready to die to the man. They were ready to send their women, their children, innocent civilians to die because human life just didn't mean in Somalia what it means in the West or what it means in the United States. And That ended up being very true the whole time we were over there, man. Like, this was an enemy that's willing to fight. So October 3rd, that morning, um, and as I understand it being told, you know, things sort of developed on the fly, so to speak, as far as the attempt to go get a deed. It was a very juicy opportunity. He had multiple of his high-level people in the same spot at the same time. And not to say it was off the cuff or the planning was off the cuff, but as the, the intelligence developed, you had to react, correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. So give me what you're told in this first briefing about, you know, going into uh, going in to get a deed. Yeah, um, I, I'm on the Humvees during all of the missions in Somalia. And usually I'm the number one Humvee, which means I'm doing all of the navigating. That also means that I get called in early while the planning is still going on to start figuring out routes. Um because we didn't have maps. We're just using satellite imagery to try to figure out how to get to a target building. And I get called in pretty early on this one. So I'm watching the whole thing unfold from the um, aircraft that's flying in the air, very much like you see in the movie Black Hawk Down. Um, white sedan with a, with a you know, uh, X painted or taped across the roof with 100 mile an hour tape, exactly like you see in the movie. And um, the plan is go in and get these two guys and everybody who's with them, Omar Salad and Saeed, these two high ranking lieutenants from my deeds clan. We kind of knew this was Bakara Market. This is the Black Sea area of, of Mogadishu. It's controlled by ID. He can mount a reaction force in five minutes. This is get in, get your guys and get the heck out of there. And you better be out in less than 30 minutes or else this is going to get really ugly really fast. That was kind of the plan going in. And the rest of the details of the plan, it was basically we're not good enough, but we know each other well enough by now. We've worked together close enough. We can figure out the rest of it within about five minutes before the aircraft take off, before the Humvees leave. We can figure that part of it out. We just need to know who and where and, you know, how do we get in and how do we get out? And for the listeners who aren't familiar with the story, long and short of the plan is four helicopters go around the target building. Rangers fast rope in, drop slide down ropes to the ground. There is a ground force that's coming in simultaneously at the same time to meet them and load all the prisoners. As well, they have other special operators coming in on Little Bird helicopters on the roof just to provide extra security and support. And then everybody's supposed to meet up on that, that vehicle convoy and ride out of the city Bam, 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 boom. Right. I mean, that's 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 basically in a nutshell, except that the little birds go in first. Blackhawks come in second. But, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. And the plan is get in and get out in 30 minutes or less or else this is going to go south on everybody. And this is the first target that we go in on that we're getting gunfire before we even get there. Usually we're moving in so fast and hitting so hard that 
it takes a while for people to even realize what's going on. On this one, we're getting gunfire before we even get to the target building. At least I am on the on the Humvees anyway. Did that send off like a red flag to you at that point? Yeah, I was like, okay, this is not good. Um, but these guys are not accurate enough with small arms fire that I feel like we're getting, uh, you know, decisively engaged. The rounds are far enough over our head that uh, it's not changing anything. It's just created a heightened sense of awareness before I even get to the target building. All right. So you're on the ground with these uh, Humvees and, and convoy that's coming in to meet all the assaulters who are coming in. Um, mm-hmm. As you're driving in and you start to see this gunfire, it, can when you look up, are you seeing anything in front of you? Describe yeah, well, I'm what, watching the whole thing. You're, okay, go down you're watching it all go down because I can. I know the the plan. I know the helicopters. I can see where the when the Rangers are sliding down the rope. I'm watching all of that go down. But um, in a blocking position, in Matt Eversman's blocking position, just to the north of me. Um, um, Todd Blackburn falls out of the helicopter, hits the ground, and I'm not even on the target building for two minutes when I'm getting a call from our battalion commander, Danny McKnight, saying, Jeff, go up to Eversman's blocking position, get Todd uh, Blackburn, send him back to the base, get him to our surgeon right away. That, that guy may not make it. Okay. So you're told you're taking who with you back? I got my squad on two Humvees, and then I grabbed some medics and their cargo Humvee. Drove up to Eversman's blocking position, grabbed Todd Blackburn, put him on this cargo Humvee. What condition was he in when you see him? Unconscious, bleeding from his nose and his mouth. Put him on a stretcher. He's got two medics trying to keep him alive. Um, And then I split my my squad up in half. Me and um, one of my fire teams on the lead Humvee, the rest of my the other fire team on the, the rear Humvee. And our job is to give them some guns to get them out of the city. All right. Now, for those familiar with the story, there is the lost convoy. That's not you guys, okay? That's right. But the only reason I bring that up is to say, because how hard was it for you to get out of the city as far as, you know, the amount of resistance that you met, comparatively speaking, to the lost convoy, which meant a lot because it was lost, but still, what were you seeing resistance-wise? Well, let me... I'll I'll answer your question, but first let me address the lost convoy. So up until this point, I have done all of the lead... Humvee navigation for the Humvees basically every day that we've been in Somalia. So by the, by the time October runs around, rolls around, I don't need the satellite imagery. I know every street in this city. I know how to get where we're going. I don't even need to look. I know how to get there and I know how to get out. The problem is I was the only guy doing that. So when we got sent back, the rest of the convoy is there without somebody who's done the navigating. They've just been along for the ride. And now guys are trying to figure out where the heck are we? How do we get out of here? And Jeff is the only guy who really knows his way in and knows his way out. Wow. So the, the convoy starts to get, as, as you see in the movie, it starts to get directions from the helicopters in the air because they really don't know where they're at. They don't know how to get out. I do. And it's not until I link back up with the convoy late in the night that I'm able to lead them again. And I'm telling you this because this is one of my mistakes. This is one of our tactical mistakes. We should have spread that around so that a lot of guys knew how to navigate in and out. We didn't. I was the guy. And when I left, it left that convoy without knowing how to get out of there, um, which which is what caused it to, to get so bad for those guys so quickly. Interesting. I had, I'd never heard that before. Um, that's uh, certainly that's a, one of those piece of evidence. Those, <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of those procedures that we should have figured out, we should have been smarter than that. It was only after the fact that we realized, man, that was a mistake. All right. So the amount of resistance you encounter on your way out to get Blackburn back to base. Yeah, I'm getting shot at. Uh, we're driving really slowly, three con- or three vehicles going maybe 10 or 15 miles an hour because the roads are in really bad condition. Blackburn has serious head and neck injuries. I don't want to make it worse for him and the vehicle behind him. And uh, we're under gunfire, and most of it's pretty uh, – inaccurate gunfire while we're by the target building. But when we turn onto the major road there, Hawadig Road, we came under gunfire from point blank range from thousands of enemy fighters. And I'm talking every doorway, every window, every rooftop, every alleyway, we're getting hit by rocket propelled grenades, hand grenades, automatic gunfire, heavy weapon systems on these three vehicles. And this is where... 
um, we're fighting now from 10 feet away for our lives. And it looks like everybody on these three Humvees are going to get decimated in a matter of seconds. And uh, the guy who's sitting right behind me, Dominic Pilla, who's got a machine gun, a Mag 58 machine gun, um, is decisively engaged with a guy right next to us. And these two guys shoot and kill each other at the same moment. This is in the movie Black Hawk Down except for Pila is shot in the forehead. It's a massive head wound and he's killed instantly. Uh, it's uh, immediate, uh, you know, death. I want to ask you, because you point this out in the History Channel documentary, for those who haven't seen it, um, you, you know, battle is chaotic. There's no doubt about it. And I can imagine in your Humvee, you're hearing all sorts of radio chatter going back and forth. Uh-huh. And I remember you distinctly saying that, you said that this, over the radio figured out that pillow was hit and somebody asked about what his status was and right. you were hesitant to tell everybody that he was KIA. Why? So I was the radio guy in the reconnaissance detachment for four years. I know how people hang on the radio to find out how the battle is going down. And I, I remember this very vividly because I was reluctant, even when I was a radio guy to make a call, knowing when I make this call, it's about to change the battle. But I got to make the call. So I'm driving. I'm fighting for my life. I'm decisively engaged. The radio is going crazy. My platoon sergeant, Bob Gallagher, calls me while I'm still decisively engaged and kind of nonchalantly says, hey, what's going on, Struker? How's it going? And I'm, I'm trying to blow the guy off just because, first, I'm fighting for my life. And secondly, I know what this is going to do if I make the call. And I was like, hey, I'm busy right now. I'm going to have to get back to you. 30 seconds later, he calls me again. Hey, what's going on? I need to know the status. So I try to play it off again by saying, hey, I'm fighting for my life. Got one guy who's down is literally what I said. And I'll get back to you when I get some time, which was kind of our SOP that if I'm in a firefight, don't bother me. Leave me alone. And then like 30 seconds later, I get another phone call from him, just like you here in Black Hawk Down, though this is my platoon sergeant, not the battalion commander, saying, I need to know who the guy is and what's his status. And it's who is he, what's his status, who is he, what's his status. And the whole radio net is going bonkers right now because everybody's in it and everybody's getting shot at. And finally, just to get the guy off of his back, I didn't even use our procedure would be to give his line number, not his real name, just to get the guy off of his back. I just simply said, it's Pilla and he's dead. And when I said that, my platoon sergeant left me alone, but every voice on the radio immediately went silent and stayed silent for about 15 seconds, which is an eternity in a comp- in a firefight like this. What were you thinking after you said that and everything I- went quiet? So this is the first guy from Task Force Ranger killed in action. And I was thinking to myself, that's it. I just told everybody in the entire task force that you may not make it out of the city alive tonight. And I may not either, because if it can happen to Pila, it can happen to you. And I think everybody heard that like, uh oh, if that's Pila, it could be me because Pila is a really, really good machine gunner. And if he just got killed, it could be me next. And I think that's what was causing everybody to stop talking on the radio. It wasn't that they mourned for Pila, it was more that, uh-oh, this could be me. Real got Which real exactly real fast, yeah. Thinking. Yeah, all right. So you end up getting back to the base. Um, Pillow's obviously KIA. Blackburn's hanging on for his life. When you get back to base, what's kind of the reception, so to speak, that you get? Sir, let me give you this part of the story. So exactly like you see in the movie Black Hawk Down, My platoon leader is back there, Larry Morris. He's just come back from a supply run, so he wasn't able to roll out with us when we rolled out onto target. He's listening to this whole thing go down. Um, Cliff Wolcott's helicopter's already been shot down. We've already put the search and rescue force in on Cliff Wolcott's aircraft, so Mike Durant's helicopter goes down after Pilla is killed, and now we don't have a search and rescue force for anybody at the Durant crash site. Soon as I make it back, Total chaos back there. Everybody's running. Everybody's, uh, you know, uh, scrambling to try to figure out how to help get this thing under control. And my platoon leader walks up and says, Jeff, second Black Hawk just went down. I need you to get you guys back on the Humvee. Roll back out there with me. We're going out to the Durant crash site. And one of the special operators who rolled back with me on my Humvee said, "Uh, Sergeant, 
Don't leave your men sitting in the back of your Humvee in all of that blood because that blood and skull fragments and brain matter that's splattered all over the back of that Humvee is going to mess them up for the rest of their life. So I pulled the rest of the guys off to the side, told them, go get some more ammunition, go get some more fuel, get ready to roll back out there. And I took this one Humvee because I've got combat experience that, remember, nobody else has at this point. And I cleaned this the back of this Humvee up with my bare hands, didn't even have running water, just water buffalo, buckets, and sponges. And man, I'll tell you, this is the most terrifying moment of my life because I was absolutely convinced this is a suicide mission. If I roll back out there, I'm going to die. And I also knew the Ranger Regiment swore by the ranger creed. I would never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy, right? I knew I had no choice but to go out there and it scared me to death. And I've told lots of audiences this over the years. It was only my faith, this really strong Christian faith that I had long before I joined the army that gave me the courage to roll back out in that city street, not once, but twice that night, stay out there until nine o'clock the next morning, fighting back and forth and losing men all night long until nine o'clock the next morning. Can you tell the story about Brad Thomas? Because that's critical. I know it's in yeah. the movie, but yeah. you know, you you really played a, a major role in that whole thing. Sure. He is to this day one of my heroes. And we come back. Dominic Pill has just been killed. Our vehicles are shot to pieces. None of us, frankly, should have survived just making it back to the base. We get notified that we're going out to the Durant crash site. And after cleaning my Humvee up, Thomas walks up to me, one of the guys from my squad, and says, Sergeant, I can't go back out there. Now, he's the only guy in the squad married besides me. And he says, I got a wife at home and I know I'm going to die, which is exactly what I'm thinking. And um I think he probably thought that I would rip his head off when he said that. But to be honest, he was saying out loud exactly what all of us were thinking. Like, this is insane. Why would we do this? This is crazy. And uh, I said, Thomas, I don't want you to think about yourself as a coward just because you're afraid. I'm scared to death right now, too, man. I just need you to know it. And I've been to combat a time or two. But the difference between a hero and a coward is not fear. It's what you do when you are afraid. That's the difference. And then I said, Thomas, I won't make you go back out there. But, man, I need you on these Humvees. And the guys that are in those city streets, they need you. And I kind of left the ball in his court. And just like you see in the movie Black Hawk Down, although I'm not driving, I'm in the passenger seat. I look in my rearview mirror and I watch him reach down, grab his squad automatic weapon and jump on that last Humvee and roll back out in the city streets. And he stayed on those Humvees all night long. And really what I want your listeners to hear is this guy was 100% convinced he's going to die. And by getting on those Humvees, he was saying, okay, I'm going to go out there and get myself killed just so that the dudes that are still out there have a chance of making it back alive. And that's why to this day, he is one of my heroes. Did you guys ever have a conversation after the fact about what you had talked about? Yeah, we talked a little bit about it. I told him how proud I was of him. I told him I would fight with him anytime, anywhere. And the next time that I saw him, we kind of went our separate ways. He did something different. The next time that I saw him was about 10 years later. We're running in um, around a little um, T-Wall compound in Baghdad, Iraq. And I'm going one direction. Some guy's running at me in another direction with a long hair, a beard and civilian clothes. And we stopped and looked at each other immediately. And I said, Thomas. And he said, Struker. And I was like, yeah, man, it's good to see you. And it looks like you're still doing what we were doing a long time ago in Somalia. I'm glad to see it, man. And that's kind of how the conversation went. And then we kept on running. Pretty amazing. You guys still have that connection. Um, when you think back about the entirety of the events, and we're coming on, you know, going on 30 years later, but 20, 25, 26 years later now, um, you know, when you run down the names of that list and, and the 19 men who lost their lives there, does it ever get to be too much for you? No. Um, I'm, I've been asked that question a lot, and I, I don't have a good answer for why, but I have never lost a moment of sleep, never really struggled with what I did or what I saw in Somalia. 
And when people ask me, Jeff, how is that possible? I tell them, I don't know, except maybe it has to do with my faith, because I really just saw this as, okay, God, whoever lives tonight lives, whoever dies tonight dies. I'm going to go out and do my job and the rest is in your hands. And maybe that's why I've never really struggled with it, never really lost a moment of sleep over it, though a lot of my friends have. And a couple of them have put a bottle or a gun to their head and killed themselves because of it. I want to touch on one more thing. I do know uh, that you took a trip back to Somalia uh, with a couple of guys that you were there with. Maybe it was just one guy, Kenny Thomas, who was with you. But, you know, I remember after leaving my first deployment in Baghdad, I remember writing in my journal saying, you know, I'd love to come back here in five or ten years just to to see what it's like and everything else. Lo and behold, I deployed back to Baghdad exactly five years later. So I got a chance to go back and I was just sitting here, but it was, I was still in combat, you know, but I remember thinking maybe it'd be a nice place to visit this, that, and the other, but, you know, going back to the place where you've had so many of these memories, harrowing, difficult, uh, emotional, whatever they may be, is there catharsis in that for you? Or is this something that you just did because you wanted to see the world X number of years later? Yeah, I'll explain that one in just a second. But I I guess your listeners should know I stayed in the Army. I stayed in the Ranger Regiment. I completed an education, became an Army chaplain, um, went to the 82nd and then back to the Ranger Regiment and did nine deployments to Afghanistan and five to Iraq the last 10 years in the Army. Jesus. (laughs) So um, I'm out of the Army. I'm retired. And one of my best friends in the world is Kenny Thomas. And Kenny called me and said, Jeff, I personally need to go back to uh, Somalia and I need to settle some things inside. And I don't feel comfortable doing it unless you'll go with me. And I was like, Kenny, Somalia is still to this day one of the most dangerous countries in the world. Mogadishu is probably the most dangerous city in the world right now. And you're asking me to go to uh, Somalia with you. And he's like, yeah, man, I need to go back and I need you to go with me. And uh, it's funny, you warriors would understand this. I think the average civilian would not. But it was pretty easy after that. I was like, okay, man, if you need to go back to Somalia and you need me to go with you and you need to get shot at again, sure, I'll go with you. And that's kind of how this thing started. And we went over to Somalia. Kenny just asked me, Jeff, would you go? I need this. So we went back there. Um, there was a lot of courageous people that did the planning and made it possible for us to go back there. And even when we were back there in that little documentary of us returning, you know, the, even the security workers, the Somali national army were saying, don't go into the black sea. Nobody goes in the black sea, leave the black sea alone. And we roll back out in the city. And then Kenny and I just kind of take over this convoy and say, Hey, turn right. We're going to go into the black sea. Um, and we go in there and you can tell from the documentary, it gets a little bit intense while we're in there. And when we come back out, uh, you know, it's like, okay, just survive that one again. That was stupid. Let's don't do that one a third time. <laughs> Great but stuff. that's kind of what brought us back to Somalia. But did it, it do anything the, for you? I, I mean, I know Kenny had stuff to settle. Did you have anything to yeah. settle? Here's what it settled for me. I left Somalia the second time sad. Um, I went over there the first time to go kill bad guys and to go accomplish the nation's objectives and hoped that it would give uh, Africa in general and Somalia particularly a chance for peace. I go back out there 20 years later and it's worse. And I kind of thought to myself, what the heck did all of that blood? We killed a lot of Somalis. There was a lot of Americans that got killed there. What the heck did all of that blood accomplish? Nothing. In fact, it's worse today than it was in 93. And I left there sad because, frankly, in order for somebody to, to, to straighten out this big mess in Somalia, it's going to take a long time and a lot of blood. And it seems like the international community, well, it also seems like even Somalia and Africa is not willing to do that. So it's gone from bad to worse over there. In closing, uh, what do we need to know most about Black Hawk Down, the experience the military aspect of it, uh, the men that were there? How do you kind of punctuate it, if you will? Um, People that don't have combat experience, maybe those that have never served in the military or never will, I want you to know something about the U.S. military. What the guys that I served with did in Somalia is nothing short of amazing and, in my opinion, heroic. Um, And I'm talking about every guy that I served with. 
And I really believe this is how good your the American military is. It's not just task force ranger. You give you put other warriors, Marines, sailors, airmen, soldiers, Coast Guardsmen, you put them in a similar situation today. And I think you're going to get similar results because that's how committed, that's how good the U.S. military is. And if the movie Black Hawk Down does anything, maybe it shows America and perhaps the rest of the world, man, these guys and gals that serve our country, they're amazing. They really are. And they deserve our our respect. They deserve our thanks and our, uh, they deserve to be honored. And I'm talking about the dudes, the guys and gals that are doing it right now. Well, Jeff, I mean, you've had an incredible career. Um, and what's remarkable is you sound as passionate today about it, I'm sure, as you did the day that you got your Ranger tab and the day that you first landed in Panama and the day that you first landed in Kuwait and the day that you first landed. I mean, it, it just it, it's steady. It's unwavering. Uh, and I think it's a testament to the fact that you still honestly believe uh, in everything that went on and everything that you did and, and the causes were noble and just and the men who, who executed those causes were equally as noble. Yeah. And I want to say thank you to man for your service to our country, for going back and forth to Iraq a time. And again, uh, I don't think America understands just how amazing this generation of warriors is. And they need they need to realize that. Again, Jeff, uh, congratulations on a wonderful career. Uh, many continued blessings. Uh, I know as a man of faith, you're still continuing to do that mission and, and that message. So continued success and luck with that. But certainly, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Yeah, thanks. It's been great to be with you today. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.